Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Just before the pandemic hit, I spent some time out in the Bay Area talking to electric vehicle and renewable energy experts. Today, I'm going to share one of those conversations. And stick around after the interview for a special edition voting rights segment with our own research and writing assistant, Jayu Liang. Let's kick off this episode with a fun fact. Electric vehicles, or EVs, are a lot older than you might think. I mean really old. Inventors in Europe and the U.S. were making their own versions of electric vehicles as early as 1828. This was a half century before the first gasoline-fueled, or internal combustion engine car, was built. But these early prototypes looked very different from the modern car and weren't practical for getting around. So even though the concept of electric cars is nearly two centuries old, the modern EV only started being mass-produced in the U.S. about a decade ago. Electric cars are an important solution to climate change, because even when the electricity used to fuel an EV comes from a dirty, coal-dominated electricity grid, EVs still produce less global warming pollution than their gas-powered counterparts. And the emissions performance of EVs will only get better as solar and wind energy continue their growth across the country. One aspect of electric vehicles that we haven't grappled with yet is how to handle the wave of EVs that will retire soon after their 12-year run. Right now, there's no comprehensive answer for what to do with an old EV. Specifically, there's no regulation at the federal level for dealing with their batteries once they're no longer on the road. It's not exactly like chucking out a AA battery when your remote stops working. Exploring this issue today is transportation technology expert Dr. Hanjiro Ambrose, an air resources engineer at the California Air Resources Board and former Hitz Family Climate Fellow at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He researches strategies for battery recycling and reuse when electric vehicles are retired, including their economic and environmental implications. We talk about what happens inside a battery as it gets older and loses capacity, where the responsibility for proper disposal should fall, and how batteries might be given a second life. Hanjiro, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to start with just some battery basics. What are the batteries that are in use today? Well, today there's really three chemistries or types of batteries that are prevalent in the market, meaning that they have a big market share. The first one is the oldest one that's been around for a long, long time, hundreds of years, and that's a lead-acid battery, the kind of battery you find in your car um, and that you know, powers your car when you start it up. The other batteries that we have a lot of are, are nickel metal hydrate batteries, which have been around for about 40 years. They're the kinds that we first had a lot of in um, portable phones, uh, especially the ones that you would have around your house, and maybe you'd leave it and then the battery would be dead. And then today, what we see a majority of really taking over the market are lithium batteries and lithium batteries offer a lot of performance improvements from some of the previous technologies and we're seeing them in everything from consumer electronics to um, personal devices like drones and skateboards to large format batteries in electric vehicles, trucks, buses and other types of uh, transportation devices. Is there a difference when we think about EV batteries? Is there a difference between like what's in my Prius? and what's in an electric car? 
Yeah, actually there are. I mean, the 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 Prius batteries were originally these nickel metal hydride batteries, which are a little different from the lithium batteries we use today. The main benefit of lithium batteries is that they can store a lot more energy for the same amount of weight. So since, you know, when you make the car heavier, it tends to consume more energy, which has this feedback loop of letting you drive less and less far. So a battery that gives you more juice for less weight is a big bonus. And lithium batteries have that going for them in addition that they don't have what we call a memory effect. So you might remember this is that um, often if you had those, those phones at home that were wireless, if you left it on the charger a lot, often you'd find after a while the battery wouldn't have much energy in it. It would just basically get drained right away. And that was because they had this memory where if you cycled them between a certain point again and again, eventually they wouldn't store as much. Lithium batteries tend to have a lot less memory in that they tend to, for a long time, maybe anywhere from 8 to 18 years, be able to deliver something like 80% of their original storage capacity, meaning that you could get about 80% of whatever you originally could out of them again and again and again for that long, which is a lot longer than current batteries on the market today. What are the environmental concerns around EV batteries? And how do we get rid of them? Can they be recycled, reused, repurposed? And are there legitimate concerns about what happens when the battery's dead and it has to go someplace else? That's, that's an important question and definitely a, a little bit of an onion to unpack. There are environmental impacts and significant opportunities for environmental impacts associated with batteries. And we should be concerned in that we should be aware of them because EVs are a strategy for reducing the pollution and emissions associated with our transportation sector. And so to the extent that making a vehicle that has a lot of battery or more material in it, more extensive production impacts, um, we should be concerned about to the extent we're burden shifting. Um, because often, you know, the supply chain for these vehicles and for these technologies is not in the same place that they get deployed. Meaning that while when I deploy an EV in California, I get some benefits for climate emissions and probably some benefits for air quality in the local airshed. The impacts of producing the batteries in the vehicles are actually felt way up the supply chain, probably in a developing or industrializing nation. And that means that we should be concerned, I think, about the equity and the environmental impacts associated with them. Now that being said, when we talk about the end-of-life electric vehicle batteries, they are absolutely recyclable. And we can do a good job at closing the loop on recycling. So what's in the batteries that would need to be disassembled or recycled? Hmm. Well, the batteries are full of, of are, are, are full of valuable minerals. Um, the majority of the battery is actually aluminum, but there's a, a handful of elements or minerals in the battery which we which we usually refer to as critical. And critical has a specific meaning here in that the supply of those minerals is constrained. The distribution of those minerals is puts it at risk, meaning that there's concentration. And so the Department of Energy and the Department of Interior recognize a list of 35 minerals, which they call critical energy minerals and are deemed important to the national security of the United States. That includes the major materials in the cathode of, uh, or in the electrodes of the electric vehicle battery. So the, the key elements that are in the electric vehicle battery, so lithium, cobalt, and manganese, um, as well as copper and aluminum, are all included in the critical minerals list. And so when you talk about what's in a battery, the key things that we usually want to recover are these minerals that are high value and are constrained. Recently, I think the focus on those is, is really on a couple things. One is cobalt. 
There's a lot of cobalt in lithium batteries. There's more cobalt in the consumer electronic type than there are in the electric vehicle type in that the chemistries are different. But cobalt is a challenge because the majority of cobalt currently comes from one region. It comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And the extraction of cobalt in the DRC is associated with a lot of negative social inequity impacts in that there are in, there's informal mining and, and, and use of child labor um, in that supply chain. And it's a huge amount of the cobalt, both the global reserves as well as the global supply. And so it's a big challenge for the producers to identify sourcing that is responsible. Is cobalt, it's in the ground. Mm-hmm. So you have to dig down. How, how deep in the ground is it? It, it? It's actually accessible from what's called artisanal mining, meaning that you can access it with hand tools. It's, it's within 100, you know, 100 feet of the, of the soil. Okay. Is it toxic? The cobalt itself is not necessarily, although it is in that there's, uh, the mining processes are toxic and that it, it does expose other types of heavy metal dust and there are, you know, there's been studies that have looked at the environmental impacts of communities um, of cobalt mining. And yeah, there are uh, issues with toxicity and hazardous exposure for miners. And there's both what we call industrial and they call artisanal mining of cobalt. So industrial is what you might think of as more traditional mining, you know, big trucks and equipment. And artisanal is this informal mining that occurs primarily by hand. And while artisanal mining is a problem, because generally you don't have the labor practices or, or enforcement, you don't have the personal protective equipment or other types of standards you might have in industrial mining. At any rate, the other two minerals really are nickel and lithium, which have become the bigger demand pieces. Um, nickel. And, and cobalt both are co-produced primarily, uh, meaning that they're produced alongside other minerals um, in the same process. Nickel, as well as highly concentrated in where it comes from, which is um, a source of concern because if there's only one supply, then if there's a disruption, it can make a big hiccup in the global supply chain. Lithium is another concern, mostly because of the fact that there has been volatility in the lithium market with respect to pricing of lithium. So a lot of people are very interested in recovering lithium as well, even though lithium is a relatively mm, small component of the price of a battery. Are there any issues with using lithium? Lithium is one of those one of those ones where it doesn't seem to be a strong constraint or a binding constraint on on battery production. The studies out there have said something like maybe a billion 40 kilowatt hour batteries with given current material supplies. My own research has suggested that we might make it out to 2075 before we need significant recycling of lithium. So we have a lot of lithium available. How do you recycle a battery? You recycle a battery actually uh, pretty much like you recycle most things in that you break it down, you separate it, and then you try to extract some of the precious materials back. And so the standard process you could think about is three stages. The first stage, the first stage of most electronic waste or electronics recycling is some type of shredding um, or disassembly. Um, there's some people who are currently investigating automated you know, robots for this. Um, Apple has a plant in Texas where they're doing recycling, automated disassembly of products for recycling. And basically this is just uh, separating, separating it up by brute force or more elegant means. And then usually there's two different stages where you do some additional separation. You can do that by um, ferrous means, meaning magnets, or you can do it through um, size or weight-based separation, so basically just screening. And then you'll usually use either heat or chemicals 
to extract the precious minerals. The most common way is today is what we call, is what mostly people call smelting. Smelters use what's called pyrometallurgic um, techniques, meaning pyro meaning fire. Um, so this is like 1500 degrees Celsius. Um, and we just basically cook the metals. And that causes certain metals to come out um, and other metals to uh, be lost into a slag or a waste product, right? And so um, pyrometallurgic recovery is effective at recovering some of the highest value materials. So the nickel and the cobalt. Um, the cobalt's the most expensive component of the, the cathode. Um, usually can be recovered through pyrometallurgic uh, means. But, you know, some of the material is lost, including the lithium is usually lost, although it can be recovered later. The other pathway usually uses chemicals. We call that hydrometallurgic or liquid. Um, and that uses a chemical or a leaching agent to separate the alloys. And this is really promising in that you can be really, you can be optimal and you can be specific in that you can make sure you tailor the process to get all the materials out. The challenge with that being that as battery designs evolve and change and everybody has their own battery, you need a bunch of different processes in order to make it work. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. And share us with your family, friends, coworkers, and on your social networks. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. So you have a battery that has passed its usefulness for, for, for my electric vehicle. So you can then, by some recycling process, sort of give that battery new life? Yeah, you can. So, I mean, think about a battery. It's it, Let's break it down a little bit. You know, the, a battery, an electrochemical cell in a battery is kind of like Pong. You know, you have these two boards and a ball that bounces back and forth between them. It really is. So what you have are these ions, right? These cations of lithium that are bouncing back and forth between a cathode and an anode, between these two electrodes. And over time, some of that lithium gets lost, it gets built up, it no longer goes back and forth. You know, you can imagine these electrodes are kind of like sponges and they get to be like sponges in your kitchen sink. You want to throw them away. They start to get really built up and really cruddy looking. Usually when we think about a battery in an EV, when it's worn out, we say, it's probably only has maybe 80, 70 to 80% of its original capacity. So when I take the battery out, of the vehicle, the things I can recycle are first, all the packaging material that's around the battery. So it's mostly just aluminum casings and things like that. But inside the battery, there's two electrodes, right? Where it, you know, I had all the, the important minerals, this, this electrodes. And these electrodes are basically foils, copper and aluminum, that have a slurry spread on them. You can kind of imagine it looks like a black jam. And that's the electrode materials. And so the idea here is that I can take the electrodes out and I can basically, using um, physical means, by grinding it up and separating it by mass, I can isolate that slurry, that material I painted onto the electrode, take it, add more lithium to it, because some of the lithium was lost, and then slap it right back on a new electrode and make a new battery. And that actually has been shown in the lab to be feasible. And there's some evidence that it, it looks really beneficial from an environmental standpoint. Mm -hmm. And like I said, the main challenge is the fact that 
batteries have been changing. And one thing that's happening is we're using less cobalt actually in EV batteries. So as I said, cobalt's the most expensive part of an EV battery. So yes, there's a good motivation to recycle them, but also there's a good motivation for manufacturers to stop using cobalt. I bet you have ideas about how to manage this process beautifully. How would you do it? Wow, that's a good question. All right, well, I'll start with the way that most of it happens you know, these days. There's, there's either usually restrictions on waste types is the kind of normal way we do this, right? We'll say something's hazardous waste, so you can only deal with it certain ways. You have to be a certain person to carry it. In the European Union, the slightly different way they've gone about it is to think about producer responsibility. Producer responsibility just basically means that whoever made it is responsible for it at the end. And so this is basically saying to whoever made the battery or the EV, you know, for your Nissan Leaf, hey Nissan, you're responsible for this battery at the end. I am skeptical of producer responsibility because I don't think it's actually been really effective at moving the needle. I think, you know, if there's not proper economic incentives to actually deal with these devices in a responsible and sustainable manner, producer responsibility is basically meaningless. So I envision a system where we have mandated and standardized producer responsibility, meaning that right now there's a challenge with data sharing and everybody has proprietary processes. But if we can all come together and agree that the goal is we need to create a sustainable and responsible way to dispose of or manage these batteries at the end of life, then we can start to share in a transparent way you know, the best practices, the data that's available, etc. So I think, you know, for me, I think there's going to be specific measures. There's going to be data standardization. There's going to be mandatory disclosure and reporting. And there's going to have to be extended producer responsibility that includes some type of core charge or economic incentive. So core charge, you know, is kind of what we do now for batteries. So if you think about your, your you know, your car battery, when you return your battery or you buy a new battery, you pay a core charge um, in most states, which represents a deposit um, on the battery, ensuring that you're going to return it and also pays for some of the disposal. You're not talking about EV batteries, right? No, now. You're I'm talking, talking about, about for automotive batteries. For, right. Yeah. yeah, and I think something like that is going to be necessary for EV batteries, something that makes sure there's an economic incentive that they are managed responsibly. If we envision that electric vehicles are the technology that are enabling us to have a clean and sustainable transportation system, then we need to develop the supply chain for electric vehicles domestically. And we shouldn't be trying to offload that production to the area with the lowest environmental standards or the lowest labor costs. So I think we have an obligation to make sure that we manage these responsibly and, as I said, where we can see them in our backyard um, and we, we do it right. Do you see this happening anywhere now? I don't know if it's happening per se. I see pushes for it. Um, in California right now, um, we're working on developing policy to manage EV batteries in the state. So I think that's an important first step. We are seeing a lot of startups in the, in the space as far as new companies emerging that are offering promising technologies for recovering materials from batteries. And on the other hand, there's also interest in developing the supply chain from a material standpoint. There's obviously interest, I think a lot of people are interested in getting a, a battery plant built in their state. I see a lot of governors that are obviously very interested in getting manufacturing developed. When did EVs first come on the market? What, what has happened to those batteries? Or are they all still alive? 
and running? This is actually <laughs> a great question. You know, EVs haven't been around that long. The modern EVs started selling in about 2012. So those vehicles have been on the road for eight years. You know, the average vehicle in the U.S. is on the road for about 12 years. Um, so meaning that, you know, um, modern EVs haven't even been on the road long enough for them to retire in mass. So uh, they're, they're, just, they're coming quickly. But currently, no. And the batteries that have been retired, that have come off the road due to accidents or quality controls or other types of, of, of issues, generally have start, have moved into a variety of experiments and, and different types of ad hoc things. Once, once a battery goes for 10 to 12 years in a vehicle, it might still be useful for five or six more years or maybe more in a low power application. Low power means that something like a stationary source. So put in perspective, running your car, your EV, your Tesla Model S, takes about an order of magnitude more power than running your home. So if I take that battery out and I use it for home storage, maybe to do, you know, allow you to charge your batteries during the day and, you know, run your TV at night, maybe there's a way in which batteries could have a second life. Um, and there's a lot of interest in that, a lot of potential for in addition that. to the recycling side. So at some point we're going to have a lot of batteries to work with mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to figure out yeah it's gonna come it's gonna come very quickly and I mean we're just we're it's a compounding right because we've had very slow rollout of electric vehicles and it's increasing very quickly and there's a couple things that are happening that are compounding that one the size of batteries in, in a passenger electric vehicle has almost tripled in the last eight years so the, in the when we started making EVs in 2012 they usually had about 25 kilowatt hours and they would go ah, 100 miles. So you're talking about size in terms of the amount of power, not the actual size. Both. You're talking about both? Okay. Yeah, both. The actual size of the battery has increased as well. Um, in in that the mass of the battery has actually increased a little bit, but the energy density has increased a lot, meaning that they've packed a lot more, um, a lot more material into the battery. And so, yeah, the batteries are just a lot bigger. The battery systems are a lot bigger. Um, and so we're putting, you know, 100 to plus 100 kilowatt hour batteries in passenger vehicles. And the other thing that's occurred that's really accelerating battery retirements is heavy duty. So if you think like an EV might have a 50 kilowatt hour battery, a bus has a 500 kilowatt hour battery. Currently, we don't have a comprehensive plan for what to do with these batteries. There's no comprehensive strategy for dealing with these. There's pieces that are occurring in the possibility. But, the, but there's no... I mean, where, where do they go? Currently, automakers are taking the batteries back, generally, because they don't want the batteries to end up in some random waste stream, and they also have a lot of um, intellectual property tied up in those batteries. So they tend to just want to take them back. So that's a, okay right now. That's kind of working out. Um, and as I said, there haven't been that many retirements. So we haven't really seen it occur. But, you know, I think what we're going to see in the near term is actually a lot of batteries getting stored because nobody there's not a good option to do with them. So we'll probably just sit on them for a while um, and wait until better options uh, become available. Well, Hanjiro, thank you for joining me on the podcast. This was really interesting. My pleasure. And now it's time for a word on voting with Jiayu Liang. On a frigid day this last winter, I went to the JFK Presidential Library in Boston to take my oath of allegiance and become one of the newest citizens of the United States. After the naturalization ceremony, I walked into a room where volunteers were waiting to help us register to vote. And so my very first act as a new citizen was registering to vote. 
My second act was enjoying a free cookie. Now November is coming, and with it comes my first presidential election as a voter. I recognize voting as an important way to use my voice, but I also know that the electoral system is flawed and doesn't always make it easy to exercise this basic right, which is why I'm grateful to volunteers who attend naturalization ceremonies to register new citizens as voters, and all those who defend the right to vote in other ways. This month marks an important landmark in that battle. 55 years ago, in the heart of the civil rights movement on August 6th, President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, a landmark piece of legislation prohibiting racial discrimination in voting. The signing was attended by Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, John Lewis, and other civil rights leaders who were instrumental in rallying support for striking down the barriers to voting that African Americans faced, especially in the South. When President Johnson called on Congress to create the Voting Rights Act, he said, quote, In our system, the first and most vital of all our rights is the right to vote. Jefferson described it as the ark of our safety, it is from the exercise of this right that all our other rights flow." End quote. And yet, voting rights are still under attack today. States continue to put up barriers for certain groups to vote by implementing unnecessarily strict voter ID laws, disenfranchising the incarcerated and returning citizens, and creating gerrymandered voting districts. These laws often impact Black, Indigenous, and other people of color the most. And in 2013, when the Supreme Court struck down an important piece of the Voting Rights Act, states with a history of discrimination gained the ability to change their voting laws without federal approval. And of course, the coronavirus pandemic has only exacerbated existing barriers to voting and election participation making it more difficult for people across the country to exercise their right to vote. As state legislatures insulate themselves from public accountability through extreme partisan gerrymandering and restrictive election laws, there are real impacts on our daily lives. Biased, unrepresentative state legislatures have been less likely to expand access to health care, and health disparities in those states have continued to worsen. And, as is often the case, the impacts are felt most acutely by the communities that are most vulnerable. In order to address the critical issues that UCS works on, from climate change to access to healthy food, we must build a healthier democracy by protecting and restoring voting rights access. By improving our democracy, we can address growing inequalities and empower communities to protect themselves. And there are many ways to do this. One thing you can do right now is make sure you're getting your friends, family, and peers engaged leading up to the general election this November. Visit our friends at sciencerising.org for resources, activities, and more. From recruiting friends to vote, to writing op-eds about local issues, to making sure you have what you need to register and cast a ballot in November, Science Rising has you covered. Visit sciencerising.org to get started. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS 
especially our partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Hanjiro Ambrose. Our voting rights segment was brought to you by Jayu Liang. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, stay safe, and see you next time.